All right, so I got 11 hours of tape. All right. That's all I got. Day okay. one. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to yet another Capes and Scouts interview. I, of course, am Tim. I'm on Twitter at mad underscore dog underscore Tim. And today, it's special because it's important. We're talking, we're going to learn a lot today. Are you ready to learn? You better be, because I'm here with Eric and Amanda from ericsjourney.org. Tell me about it. Tell me, how are you guys? How are you? I'm awesome. You're nervous? Are you nervous? Tell them you're nervous. I'm, I'm getting, I'm trying to get over that hump of nerve. Like, I feel it right there. He's, do, he's I'm doing I'm about good. to get over it. You're I doing think, great. I think. It's very laid back. They're already used to my voice. They so love your good. voice. They do. They're already rewinding to hear it again. <laughs> Amanda, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. And we're recording at Mageworks in Collingswood, New Jersey. Give Jason a call. Tell him you love him and that uh, you hear he's some sort of wizard with all these musical instruments. A wizard. That's right. So, Eric, tell everybody what your charity does. So we try to raise awareness and support people with rare diseases. Some of the rare diseases that specifically we've been affected with, histiocytosis and Stills disease, which is also known as juvenile idiopathic arthritis. So that's generally when you see a child with arthritis, that's the arthritis they have. And when I was diagnosed with histiocytosis, there wasn't much information. She was all over the internet. I was in a coma. She had to do everything and she scrambled. And we've worked really hard over the past, what, eight years in trying to change that for as many people as we can. I'll try to talk to people when they're newly diagnosed to let them know what they're going to expect long-term, short-term. Kind of helps them, I think, too, because they they know that they can make it. Knowing you can make it is a cool thing. Absolutely. When I was in the hospital, like, we didn't know. The doctors couldn't tell me. Right. This disease, we don't know. We don't even know, like, your percentage to make it. So that was kind of odd. And then not knowing that many people actually survived as an adult. And a lot has changed in the past eight years. It really has. So... For those who don't know, let's talk about HLH. Let's talk about what you went through because you are, it's weird to say, you're a trailblazer in this because you're finding all the information and you're putting it out there for everyone else. So like you said, there's not a lot of cases of it that have this great documentation. So let's talk about what you went through, even if it's a little scary, because I, I want people to know what they would have to deal with in this scenario and to know the signs and kind of prepare themselves for what could be. Yeah, so when I first started getting sick, it started with like achy pain, like kind of the, the pain you would get with the flu, similar to an arthritis pain in your joints. And it kept getting worse and it got worse to the point where I couldn't stand up. After a couple of days, she did take me to the hospital. My face was pretty pale. People at work asked me like, hey, are you sick? Like you should go home. So it was noticeable physically as well. Really bad sore throat. So it mimics strep throat. I never had strep throat. And about a week I spent at Kennedy Hospital, where they had no idea what was going on. So I was basically on a backwards flip between Toradol and morphine to try to stop the pain. The pain was so bad in everything. And eventually there, it just kept getting worse. I got put in like a basement room, and she was getting really scared. And right. the dude next to me was like you know, quadruple bypass, recovering, loud as could be, watching his TV, but like, that's where you go, and I was there. What did that do to you, being shuffled away into the basement? That sounds terrible. It kind of was. Like, I was, I first felt I was in this awesome room. It was glass doors, like, I'm on this bed, and like, it felt clean, and then I was in this basement, 
with another, and it probably wasn't a basement, but it was just a concrete room. I mean, with, it's how you felt, so. Yeah, like the guy in the bed next to me, and his TV was so loud, and all I wanted to do was sleep. And then the thirst, your throat's so sore you can't drink. Eventually, my lungs went completely white on an x-ray, 100% full of fluid after a bronchoscopy, and I was helivac to Temple University Hospital and put on a machine called ECMO. I will not get this right, but it's basically like artificial lung, like a box. Mm-hmm. My, I do have a lot of vivid memories of going through this process. Like I shouldn't have been awake, and I was. Yeah, it's scary. It was interesting. I got sewn to a robot. Like, I remember getting sewn to a robot. I remember the scars. And what they do is there's this box that deoxygenates your blood or oxygenates your blood and does whatever your lung's supposed to do and then pumps it back in your body. But you got a tube that's like a quarter inch or a half inch that they literally have to sew into your, your heart. So I remember, like, sitting there and feeling the tugging on my head from the actual scars I have. They sew the tubes down the side of your body to your body so you don't screw the tubes up. Right. The poor ladies who did my central line, like it felt like fire going up my arm so slow. And then eventually it made it into my heart and like it was fire. And the two ladies were singing to me the whole time. And 99 days later when I told them that, they're like, holy crap, you should not have remembered any of that. Oh boy. But some of these kids, too, have these memories. It does get rough when they're keeping you on life support. But I think, like, people do hear you. That's kind of important. Like, people, I think, really do hear you and need to know. Like, she would tell me every day, you're okay. You're okay. Like, we're here. We're doing this. So I think after, after like, two weeks, maybe, on this ECMO machine, they finally diagnosed me by doing a bone marrow biopsy through my groin because they couldn't turn me. I was on 8,000 units of heparin, so if like they picked my finger, it'd shoot all the way across the room. So they had to do that through my groin, and then she had to sign that, which was like, yeah, probably not going to make this one, but we might be able to diagnose them. So she did. They found the histiocytosis in my blood, which the treatment is not antibiotics, which I was pumped through so much, like, because they think you have the flu or they think you have a viral thing. Once they switched to chemotherapy, high-dose steroids, I started recovering very, very fast. So within probably another 30 days, I had to relearn to breathe. I was trached for, I think, 30 days. Oxygen for a long time, but I think the, the tracheotomy was done towards the end. It was about 10 days because your lungs were still too weak for you to breathe on your own. And so that allowed you to get less assistance than the ventilator could give and help strengthen your lungs a little bit easier. Yeah, so when they, uh, like my lungs were like newspaper. Right. They didn't have strength because I was on ECMO for 34 days. So my lungs were not being used. So you can imagine if you left your arm not moving for 34 days, and then all of a sudden you had to move your arm to actually live and breathe, it hurts. Yeah. And the doctors, like, they have to suffocate you. And they have to turn, they, they turn a, or open a bubble in your throat, and you can't breathe, so you're getting air through the tube. Your chest doesn't move up and down. Your throat, you don't feel this breath in your throat. So you're watching this clock, and you're like, holy crap, am I alive? And I can't talk. I can't move. Uh, I could barely kind of move my hands, move my eyes. They kind of learned how to understand me through my eyes. It was weird. They take it off and they notice, okay, we need to put him back on the oxygen when you start struggling too much. Then they do that for two minutes. Then they do that for three minutes a couple hours later, then four minutes. That was probably one of the worst parts of it was this, you did not feel, when they uh, close the balloon and you go back on the machine, 
like you're sitting there like, oh my God, I can't do this. I can't do this. Please put me back on the machine. Then you're back on the machine and it's like, how the hell am I alive? I'm not breathing. Like, right. feels, how is this happening? feels out of body in a way. And like, you aren't mm. breathing. So you like, you sit there not breathing. That was scary. And that took a while. That took like a week of doing that till I could finally be on room air. Then you had to eat thick and liquids, which is like cream of wheat. That was your water. You did eat it with a spoon and eventually get your throat up to swallowing. And then all the walking, learning the, all that recovery. I can't imagine how exhausting that is. I mean, I, me personally, I've gone through the cancer stuff and I know how tired I was, but I still had most of my functionality. So I can't imagine just being kind of confined and not really able to converse with people. It was interesting. I think the, the, the good part of it was you could actually just let yourself go and trust the doctors and nurses, and then you don't have to do any work. That was helpful. Like that, I guess, fatigues a lot of other people who don't get that luxury, but I was able to lay there and let people fix me through this whole process. That was helpful and tiring in its own way, stuck in a hospital. One thing that did help is I didn't have many worries outside of what was right there. There's no house around me to fix anything. There's no, I was just there and being taken care of. That was pretty helpful. I mean, these nurses, they do an amazing job. The doctors, them too. Yeah, absolutely. It's tough. It's tough because they know so much and they're, they're trying to make you comfortable. And now, Amanda, talk to me about your state through all of this, because this is probably pretty, pretty rough on you, the, the beginnings of this for sure. So for me, at the point where Eric was in the first hospital and the doctors had noticed his, his lungs were pretty white and they kind of, you know, called me. I'm just, I'm getting my coffee. I'm stopping at Wawa and I get a call from Eric's mom. Where are you? Where are you? Hurry up. And the doctor's trying to call you and you need to get in here and you need to sign these papers right away. And, you know, I'm all of a sudden like, wait a minute, we were just down in the step down unit feeling like the basement, like Eric said, you know, and now all of a sudden there's this big rush, which seems to be the issue. And so, you know, they rushed him up for this lung biopsy and they're keeping him sedated. And it was a couple hours had, had gone by after that he got back to the room. And I said, well, you know, when are you going to take him off the sedation? When are you going to wake him up later this afternoon? And the nurse kind of turned to the side and she was like, oh, we're just keeping him comfortable. And I was like, hmm comfortable. I'm sitting there thinking in my head, I don't think any 27 year old kid needs to be comfortable. Like he should be kicking and screaming and yelling in pain, you know, which is not what anybody wants to be in, but you sure don't want to be kept comfortable um, yeah. in, in that regard. And so for me, it seemed like they really didn't know what was going on at that point. And so the doctor said, well, what happens this weekend? It's the weekend in a hospital. They don't do much. So what's the plan? What's, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to get the results back Monday or Tuesday. Okay. What happens if they come back negative? And the guy was like, well, he might need this thing called ECMO. Well, do you have that here? No. Okay. And so then the gears started going in my head. And so in my past, I had my father passed away when I was 15. He had a heart attack and my sister had passed away of also a, a crazy experience, a result of a flesh-eating bacteria um, wow. post-operative in Costa Rica when she was living there. And so that combined with Michael Jackson's passing and propofol, my sister's ultimate demise was the inability to stabilize her blood pressure. And so I'm sitting there looking at Eric. I'm watching this propofol drip 
I'm watching his blood pressure slowly become less stable. And so for me, it was like, all right, I think we kind of need to think about moving. And so it turned out that a nurse he had had that day had worked part-time at that hospital and part-time at one of the university hospitals that had ECMO. And so at that point, he was like, hey, you know, make some calls. You can ask to transfer. And so 24 hours had gone by. One of the other hospitals wasn't accepting outside ICU patients and Eric's parents had gone home to go take a shower. My aunt went downstairs to smoke a cigarette. I'm sitting there and this guy comes in, you know, with this ancient phone cord stretched across the uh, the ICU. And he's like, what do you want to do? They'll come take them. And I was like, well, I don't know. Can we wait a little bit? Like nobody's here. It's just me. And he's like, well, no, they kind of need an answer now. Like they'll be here in 35 minutes. They'll medevac him. And I was like, well, can't we just take an ambulance? That's kind of expensive to take a helicopter, isn't it? He was like, well, they don't think he's going to make the flight. And so it was at that point that I was like, oh shit, like this, this is just, this just got real. Yeah. This is not something lighthearted that I can wait for people to be done taking a shower or for my aunt to come back and help me. The nurse was looking at me in desperation of like, please make your decision now. And so I said, yes. And exactly 35 minutes later, these men and women came in their aviator suits and came downstairs with their yellow stretcher and their cold blanket, wrapped them up like a sausage. And, you know, by the time my aunt and I had got downstairs and we were sitting in her car, we start hearing this whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And we're like, no, it can't be. And within the next like 30 seconds or so, we're looking up outside the windows of her car, watching the helicopter take off in the snow um, from the hospital in New Jersey to go to Philadelphia. Jeez. And so at that moment, it, it became not only, you know, sort of that figment of your imagination of like his life is in my hands but it literally felt like his life was in my hands at that point because there he was going he, it doesn't get any more real than that yeah he, his life definitely was in your hands jeez eric if you had to give advice to someone especially a younger person who's going through this that maybe feels similar symptoms and they're they're getting this diagnosis what what kind of comforting words could you say to them to make them feel a little better about some of the processes they'll be going through like it all come like all the the treatment it comes to an end and you can get through it there's a big community out there we're here to help like in any way we can you know you can make it through it the survival a lot of people are surviving today i mean it's it's great to see but we're still losing a lot but you know these strong little tough people these a lot of kids they're like little warriors they're amazing to watch they're so strong so resilient and they just jump back into life like it's amazing it is amazing to watch yeah, they it's, it's great to hear they are resilient and i i know this is an audio podcast but eric may be the sexiest man i've ever seen so uh you have <laughs> you have something to to look aspire to uh kids to to be i mean you've got it all together man you're doing great you look great you're healthy working on it strong like an ox uh it's it's been rough i'm a little skinny so clothes do hide a lot that's sure. very nice um because like I, I was going to do my videos of belly man, but I never did. <laughs> so that was something I was going to try to do to raise awareness. I still might in the future. We have um, a few in the archives. But yeah, now, like I'm on a pretty regimented diet to try to stay eating the most anti-inflammatory foods to just help my symptoms. So that's been helpful. I dropped like 130 pounds afterwards. I was on high dose steroids for years, mm -hmm. which is high steroids are rough. There, there's they're, good and bad to steroids. Yeah, they're really hard on you mentally. 
Mm-hmm. And it's tough on, like, I guess, parents with kids that have to be on these steroids or, like, it mentally damn near destroyed me being on these steroids. Like, they are a hard medication to be on. Right. So it's a goal to get off steroids, to get off steroids as fast as you can. And that's usually, you know, a pretty big goal for a lot of people going through this. And then there's in- incremental goals as you go. And, and each one's a pretty big stepping stone off of steroids, off of other medications, and then try to get back into life. So tell me a little bit, give me the timeline sort of how you formed Eric's journey. So after I got out of the hospital, or while I was in the hospital, it was bad. Like I, I couldn't walk, so I'm stuck in this bed. And I kind of mentally got through it thinking that like, yeah, if I can get out of this, like then I could help people. This is worth it right now. When I got out, you know, we, we talked to a lot of people. We were, my wife would do a lot of the uh, outreach online, just talk to thousands of people. And I'd get to talk to hundreds of people. And you, it just kind of grew from like getting out of the hospital and being alone to finding some organization organizations out there that are doing things, finding some more people, and then people are getting diagnosed and they don't know what to do. And then they would reach out to us. And for a while, we'd have like a new person every two weeks that I'd be talking to. And that did it. That that was a toll. That was very hard for years. But, you know, the mixture of high dose steroids and trying to help others through a situation that you're not even through yet. But then that's how I got through it. You, You meet people. And you realize that people are cool. Like everybody is really nice when you get to finally have something in common to talk to them about. Yeah, the social aspect is great. And people need to talk to people, whether they'll admit that or not. You know, some people are a little hard-edged, but they want to talk to people. They want to have information from somebody who gets it. You know, uh, the family, the parents, maybe they don't. They're trying to be supportive, but to hear it from someone who's been through it definitely uh, makes a huge difference. Yeah. When I was in there, it was lonely. It was very, very lonely. When I finally could talk, um, I had a trach, so I have one of those little high voices for a while, and I make a couple phone calls to people (laughs) like, hey man, what's up? (laughs) Uh, That was great. Like, that was such a big big day. So like that is the thing we try to promote is talk to people while they're in the hospital, engage them, keep engaging them. Then another big stepping stone was the dogs. She brought the dogs to Philly one day. That was huge for me, like on a mental level that, you know, we try to support any kind of program these hospitals have to bring in dogs. Mike was trying to bring it to Temple at that time, um, a dog program. And that's another amazing one. I love dogs. Yeah. Pets are pretty great. Mm hmm. They are, and that would be something, like, if, if you do know somebody in the hospital, try to get a pet to them, like a uh, the programs that do it. What do you call that? The foundations that'll bring dogs to you. Like, look into that. They're there. Getting a dog to somebody who's sick, a lot of getting better is mental. Absolutely. And animals are so loving, and, you know, you know, as an example, I could be a complete asshole all day long, and then, like dog doesn't care dog just wants to snuggle like mm-hmm. that feels good yep. <laughs> that's step one of turning that back around <laughs> yeah they they make a difference and through that through i guess outreaching to people talking to people we found just pe- like problems within how 
the medical system works, families that weren't able to get medications they needed. Different In different states, with Stills disease, you might be put on an infusion first uh, before trying like Humira or another biologic that the doctor may think is better. And like insurance companies can force you to take certain medications. And it's always a fight for my doctors to get me the right medications still. I have Stills disease, which is a rare disease. And the treatment, the approved treatments are like, there's two of them. All the other medications treated as well, Humira, Embril. So everybody's on a plethora of different medications that work based on their bodies. And there has been people that have changed medications and passed because of it. So there's there's lobbying that new, we're working with New Jersey to try to change that. Pennsylvania last year changed that. Now insurance companies can't do that without giving you the exact reason why. And if your doctor, there's some rules that- There's a lot of, yeah, because it's confidentiality issues. They're only allowed to say so much. It's tough for, it's tough for you clearly, but it's like, it's tough for them too. It We just need to get some sort of I guess more information out there about the medicine, what is working, what is not working. And like you said, it is an, on an individual basis, case by case sometimes. Certain medicine, your body just may not take to it. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're on a plethora of, of medicine, I could definitely see that happening. Yeah, it's tough. And a lot of doctors don't know. But then at first we had an expectation that they should know. And we have learned that there are so many rare diseases. It's insane how many rare diseases there are. So when we talk to doctors, we try to capture it. Uh, and we, we talk at like Rutgers, we've talked at Temple. But when we do end up talking to doctors, it's trying to educate them to look at auto-inflammatory. Not the HLH, not the Stills disease, not one of these rare diseases, but one of these categories of rare diseases. The high-dose steroids can really help. Um, there are a couple journal articles that have come out about treating patients with advanced lung issues and inflammation with higher dose steroids that has been shown to work. Not related to Stills disease or Histio, but it causes the same lung problems and the steroids reduce that as it does for Stills disease, uh, histiocytosis. So when you're going to the doctor with these illnesses, this flu, this something that you don't know what it is, it could be one of these auto-inflammatory issues doesn't have to be HLH, doesn't have to be Stills disease. There's enough out there, there's enough, the treatments are so similar that it'll eventually, it'll help you stay alive to get the right treatment. Gotcha. Uh, that's kind of what they had to do with me is keep me alive long enough to get me diagnosed and get the right treatment there. And as long as I could stay alive that long, I made it. And I probably only had a couple more days left, but the diagnosis got the right medication. Wow. That's amazing. It is crazy to think, I just slept, she dealt with it. Yeah, I know, I don't know. You're a trooper. She's just smiling. See, I kind of, <laughs> I woke up getting better. You don't want to pat yourself on the back? <laughs> no, I mean, I kind of was just there, you know. She deserves a pat on the back. If you see her, pat her on the back. Uh, make sure she knows you're there. Don't scare her. Work the whole time. She'd bring her computer and sit on the little air vent and work, like on that air vent in the hospital. Go home, sleep, do it again. It's work, impressive. hospital, and then even afterwards, it's like she every day is working to, to talk to people, to meet new people, to work on these websites, to get this stuff out there as much as possible. And we try to do it, and she just powers through. She's done so much for the community over the past eight years. It's just insane, the work she's put Team in. Team effort. Pat yourself on the back, or I'm ending this. <laughs> I'm going to end this interview right now. I want to hear an audible pat on the back. There it is. All right. <laughs> All right. Interview on. Um, 
But no, a support system's super important. Absolutely. If you're not sure what to do, you can reach out and find ways and recommendations, or if you have a thought, you know, it's best to share it with the community and let people know what you what you think, what, what works for you, you know? Now I wanna ask you guys, how did Dynamite come about? Because Dynamite is awesome. <laughs> Dynamite's Dynamite awesome. Dynamite is awesome. So Jen Mitchell, down in Texas, her son Jaden has LCH. Mm which is now under and called a cancer. So that kind of helps get the awareness out. Right. Uh, it's it's like a you're it's making the wrong cell in a spot. Okay. Uh, LCH is probably not my best area of expertise to explain, but it can happen much like HLH and that it presents differently in different patients. So some people it affects different areas of their body, but it's often treated with a lot of the same medications. So chemotherapy, high dose steroids, you know, your scans, and particularly with children, you're dealing with hormone issues and endocrine issues, and so you know the children and the, the the young kiddos and the teens have it pretty rough. It does affect adults as well. And so they're they're generally a minority population, just like in, in HLH, but they're all related to the histiocyte cells that are in your body, part of your immune system. And so yeah, Jennifer was uh, down in Texas, and she wanted to do something. Um, she's a widower, and, or a wid- widow, and um, <laughs> she is a widow. And, um, you know, so she's, she's primarily been dealing with histiocytosis with her son alone for the last 10 years or so. And so, you know, it's often difficult financially going through a, a brief medical experience, let alone a long-term one. And Absolutely, um, yeah. Her thing's crocheting. You know, mine might be social media or website. And, like, instead of picking up a book and reading, that's what I do. That's just my thing. Eric likes to pick up miniatures and paint now. And so that's now his thing. Um, and we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. But for Jennifer, it was crocheting. And so she really wanted to develop something that was particularly for patients with histiocytosis so they could have something special and unique to them to help them get through their fight. Very cool. Yes, she uh, she made dynamite and started mailing them to people. We saw that and talked to her, and then we requested a dynamite. So I got my own little dynamite, and we took them to the Cincinnati Zoo, and we're doing all kinds of cool, like, pictures with them, made a social media for them, and we're like, you know what? Let's get a costume. Why not? Mm-hmm. It's only going to help raise awareness. Like, it can't hurt anything. And we talked to Jen, and we designed a costume with... Uh, a place in Philly. Um, Pierre's made the the suit. Went and picked it up. Did a and video- all, all while doing video chats with Jen. So you know, you think about how life was 20 years ago, and even 10 years ago, and right. where we've come to have FaceTime and you know video chats through Facebook, and that's really what's helped bring this community together. Without you know, there was the opportunity to meet people through chats and forums, and there just seemed to be a disconnect there, particularly with the adult and teen communities populations of the community with that ability to be able to connect with her and have Jen be here with us you know all the way from Texas to help develop something like this is is just completely invaluable and it's really what's helped this community grow so much technology being used correctly that's right I like (laughs) it 
<laughs> so we, we got the costume and do stuff with them. Uh, we'll bring them to events. We'll... I love seeing you run around in that costume. Thank I mean, you. I feel bad for you when it's like really hot out, but. I have an ice vest and, you know, we don't know what we're doing, but we'll take the costume out and we'll hand flyers to people. You know, we walked around the, the beer event and mm -hmm. people wanted to know who he was. And we probably educated five, ten people that day, maybe. Right. And you hope that eventually one or two of them will. It just takes one. Just takes one person. Yep. Um, that's what we're doing today. We're educating people who may not know about HLH. One little spark. That's right. And by the way, dynamite is what? What? What is he? Uh, uh, is he like a horse? <laughs> is he like a unit? What? What? He's dynamite. The Histio warrior dragon. He's a dragon. He's a dragon. Yes. Dynamite is a very cute little dragon. Yes. Nice. Yes. He's uh. He is cute. He's pretty cool. I like him. Yeah. I li he has a cute little look to him. It's cool to see uh, young kids weirdly at the beer event. Um, <laughs> super excited that there's a giant dragon walking around outside. <laughs> he likes to shake his tail scales. Yeah. yeah. In, in and out of the suit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's kind of a nice way to like walk where you could really strut. It's pretty cool. Like in Dynamite, <laughs> it looks like he's he's like taken over the town. And uh, that's also helped me a lot. Like being able to do that to give back. Like we've never had a lot of money to be able to give back to the community. We were going through the disease at 20 something. Like we just got married three months ago. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. And then this, like, so we can't support these organi organizations financially. We can't support the disease financially yet, but we can do what we can with what we have. Um, Awareness is huge. And Absolutely. it's with this disease, it's, I mean, we do do a lot for research. We work with a lot of organizations that do amazing things for research. Um, and that's helping. I mean, there's potential cures coming out in the future. There's drugs that are stopping this disease in its tracks in certain cases that are in the process of getting more approved. And if they're not being diagnosed, they can't get the treatment. So when you're working on developing medicine and treatments, uh, do you go and work with people overseas as well? We just learn about what they're doing. Okay. So we learn about what the different drug companies are developing and why, which are at events where you're learning what things that are in your cells are called. She knows this, I don't. So there's things that go through your cells and things that block things that go through your cells. And you're, they're supposed to, some things are supposed to go through, but some things block everything. Gotcha. So like that's kind of what's happening in these studies that I can grasp. So when we're doing the work with research, we're working with like Cincinnati Children's Hospital's leading experts. They're getting the research funds at Cincinnati. They're doing the research and then they're presenting it at their mm -hmm. conference. And locally, Philadelphia CHOP recently uh, put together their center for auto-inflammatory and autoimmune conditions. So as a part of that, HLH goes under that blanket. They'll be focusing more on HLH treatments there. And we're constantly those... talking to those doctors back and forth at these places throughout the year, seeing what's happening and trying to figure out where and what we can do. That's fantastic. That's good to hear. It's very good to hear. So let's talk about your miniature painting. Okay. So there's, there has to be like a little nerdy little, you know, bow wrapped on this. So <laughs> tell everybody how I know you. I know you because of, of your, your hobby. So tell me, tell everybody about that. Uh, yeah, so I never really painted, never really was in the art. And I started painting minis because they're cool and fun games. And you might as well, if you're playing fun games, I'm getting less and less able to do things outside. So it just naturally kind of formed into, hey, when I was a kid, magic was awesome. D&D was awesome. You know, now real life hits you and you got to work and then you don't have time for it anymore. And you, you really like lose that fun aspect of life. 
and then you get knocked down and you get back to like, whoa, this was cool. And starting to go up to the, the comic store, we started, we, we went up for Pathfinder, level 15. That was, we had no idea what we were doing. Right. So we didn't know how to do that. But then we found that the D&D games were the lower level. 5e makes it easy to just play. Like, you don't really need to know the rules. I don't know the rules well, and I DM. It's great. <laughs> they tell me what the rules are. It works. He, he knows. He knows if you're listening, his group. He knows, and, and all your characters are, are in for a big surprise this week. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I read the books. I do. <laughs> um, but then, like, I started painting the minis, and it, it just it kind of calms your mind. It, it stops thoughts, and you're just concentrating on, on art. And it feels good, and it's developed over the years. Like, it really has into, I mean, I can do okay. I think you do better than okay. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You. I'm, I still have a lot to learn. I do okay. You do better than okay. <laughs> Trust me. I have a lot to learn. I'm working on eyes. I just, eyes are so hard. It's, well, I mean, they're miniature. Yeah, but I want to get that white, black, and then color with a little white dot above the color. Oh, well, good luck with that. I'm at like the white <laughs> and the black dot now. I'm working on it. I'll get there. Uh, but the mini painting. That uh, psycho brush? The, the, that real tiny, tiny brush? Oh, yeah. Yes. The, the psycho is for eyes, if you're wondering. <laughs> it, it works great. And we, uh, like, I, I paint the minis. What am I going to do with them all? Mm-hmm. So then there's another problem. And it just works out that we can help, you know, donate funds to these charities that we do or our charity to help us do the things we're working on through selling the minis. And it helps. It works. And then we'll sell some minis on Etsy. But really just painting them calms you. Like, it really does. And then when you see a room that you painted, it's kind of cool. And painting kind of helps you get through a lot of dark places. You can't forget your childhood. You got to bring some of that back when you're older. Yeah, I think... People are way too serious sometimes. I'd agree. It's, it's, and you, you have to be serious in life. Like it stinks, but you do have to be serious. But then you have to balance it. I mean, I men- your mental health is as important as your physical health. Yeah. It is. And uh, I enjoy the painting. I'm not as good as you. I love it. It's amazing. Everybody's got one color eye. <laughs> if they're lucky. Awesome. No, everybody has visors on, just visors. <laughs> if somebody has exposed eyes, no. <laughs> yeah, I was going through a while of just washing the eyes and being like, their eyes are closed. Everybody's eyes are closed. They're sleeping. <laughs> yep. They're waiting. Uh, yeah, they're, I'm getting there, though. You just find people that do them amazing and zoom in, and you're like, wow, it looks like you did that on a one-foot eye. How did you do that? <laughs> but they're good. So the mini painting kind of happened and then you know the D is there that kind of like our group's a mishmash of of probably yes. beat up people yes like, it is we do have some pretty beat up people in our group i love going one of my favorite things to do because i work in the other building so when i come in and i i come into the room where all the D games are going and i just hear little glimpses of what is happening as i go by all the games and i'm just like ooh, that's a mistake Ooh, that sounds terrible i'm like oh he's murdering that guy <laughs> that's not a good idea <laughs> But uh, I love how passionate everybody is with the the D and D. It's a really uh, it's a great game to get you out. It helped me get out of the house years ago. I mean, we started going up to the shop playing Magic. I'd mm-hmm. go up by myself. Then I was playing uh, Warhammer with Warhammer RPG with uh, one kid. We were just I was the the player. He was the DM, and I would just smoke my Eho sticks and shoot stuff. Right. And then it transitioned into Pathfinder was way too hard at high level. Years of going there, a lot of fun. A lot of great people. Yeah, we have fun. We're a mess, but we have fun. <laughs> That's, that sounds like a good thing to put on a business card. We're a mess, but we have fun. Oh, yeah. 
I'll put that on my business card. I need to get a new business card. <laughs> Good idea. I like that one. <laughs> so uh, I, I think we're going to wind it down here. So guys, tell me and, and the audience the best places to work with you for uh, Eric's journey or maybe to get dynamite to their town or to, you know, buy some painted miniatures. So they all help. Um, Eric's journey. We have our website. We have Facebook and Instagram. We are on them. If you message any of those medias, you will get us. Ericsjourney.org. Pretty simple. Ericsjourney.org is our website. Facebook is Eric's Journey with HLH and Stills Disease. Instagram is Eric's Journey Foundation. I'm remembering. You're doing. This. You're doing great, Amanda. You were worried. You were worried. You got this. <laughs> She's our media expert. Um, I, I like that they're going to hear that you got this right. I mean, I could have edited it, but no, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, do you know Dynamite's website? Dynamite has an Instagram. Dynamite nice. has a following. And then the miniatures, uh, Beneath the Deep Minis. One of the giveaways we're doing in a few weeks will be for a dice tower where if you follow Eric's journey and Dynamite, you have a chance to win this awesome hand-painted dice tower. So that will be a giveaway on Instagram to help us bring people to Eric's journey and understand what it is uh, in the gaming community. Because the gaming community does amazing things for a lot of these charities. They and, sure do. You know, I I've talked to the people at Extra Life. I've talked to the people at these, uh, the cons. You know, they're interested. We're, we're future partnerships. We have the potential for a lot of good things to happen. So just getting people to know who we are, I think, is once they see the need of the disease they, and what it actually is, you know, they're, they're going to want to help. Absolutely. But they have to see it. Right. And, you know, a dollar here, a dollar there helps out. If you're, you feel like, you know, I can't do anything, of course you can. Everybody can help out. And a share. This disease is at the share level. If you just share it, you will save lives. That's huge. I mean, I've seen it talking about just social media and podcast level, but just to get uh, the word out there, just share it on your Facebook. Uh, all your family will say, oh, you, you care about this thing, and then they'll share it, and it just really goes from there. Every couple years, something hits the national media. The most recent thing, uh, a ESPN sports journalist, 30 some years old, just passed away from HLH. So it happens. And, you know, if you're diagnosed early enough, you could survive. So really a share. That really is all it takes, knowing what it is will save people. Knowledge is power. Anything you want to throw onto the end of this one here? I think he did a pretty good job. I think he did a really good job. Yeah. I, I was going to make him all nervous and, and just just mess with him. Make but him I, fidget? Yeah, make him fidget. But I'm still a little nervous. You're, it's over. You did but it. <laughs> this was great. Why are you nervous now? I don't know. You did it. Awesome. It's great. Awesome. Unless I edit this to make you sound terrible, but I don't know how I would do that. Awesome. That'd be weird, right? I'm yeah. not going to do that. <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much. Again, just just shout out your your social medias, uh, and, and and we'll take it on home here. Eric's Journey Foundation, check me out. All right, thank you guys for listening, and uh, you have a good rest of your day. <laughs>